Welcome to The Read Along, a bitty book club for your ears. A proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. time. This episode of The Read Along is brought to you by Skirts of Fire, a festival that features the work of women in the arts. This year's festival is bigger than ever before, with venues in Old Strathcona, downtown Edmonton, and Alberta Avenue. Among the highlights are The Blue Hour, a timely, funny, complicated, and ultimately heartbreaking place set in a small Alberta town circa 1947. That's at the Westbury Theatre in the Arts Barns in Old Strathcona. You can also take in music, dance, drumming, and performance art all along Alberta Avenue, and much, much more. Skirts of Fire takes place from February 27th to March 8th, Festival passes are on sale for just $38. That will get you into the Blue Hour, one evening performance at the station on Jasper, and as many by donation events as you like. You can get your tickets today at skirtsoffire.com. That's skirtsoffire.com. So we need to start with another illness disclaimer. Yeah, Nita's health has been just a roller coaster the past few months. I have a dudder code. Yeah, when you have a toddler bringing in germs, as he does. <laughs> yes. And your immune system is mildly compromised. As it is. Um, you uh, you end up getting sick a little more often than normal. I'm sick again. So uh, Anita sounds a little congested this week. I sound a lot congested <laughs> this week. Uh, but that's not going to stop us from doing an episode. We press on healthy or unhealthy. We will find a way. We ask that you kindly bear with us. Indeed. Uh, so with that disclaimer, uh, a brief look back at Chapter 7, the Sarah Laurie chapter, <laughs> as Anita described it. Uh, based on this chapter, we should be calling it the pre-Sarah Laurie chapter. No, it was, it was a chapter that was a deep dive into her background. Oh, that's true. And that is indeed what it was, uh, as we took a look at her reading history after robbing a library, sort ooh, of. Ooh. Sarah Laurie, part one. Sure. I like it. And then we also got to hear about her terrible play. <laughs> well, we don't know that it was terrible, but based on what we do know, it does not sound great. No. And uh, it gave Thompson an idea of just where Sarah Laurie might be hidden. And that segues us directly into Chapter 8 of The Municipalists by Seth Freed. Part two. Sure. So we do start this chapter with a little bit of history um, about the Metropolis subway system, which we've already been given some hints about, but get a little more texture. Yeah. Too. A little, a little more detail, maybe. Yeah. This which, is which sort of helps explain why uh, Kirkland was able to do what he did. We will find out what he did, <laughs> but first it's going to be explained to us. Well, yeah, but this is also in line with. Um, Seth Freed's other chapter starters, where we get the feel for the neighborhood they're in. It's just that, in this case, the neighborhood they're going to be spending the chapter in is underground. Yeah. In the subway system. Yeah, it's all good. What we learn is that the Metropolis subway was basically the worst in the world for many years. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it was because 
much as the city itself is is a hodgepodge and a patchwork, so too was the subway system. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't under one specific company or branch of government. Yeah, it was just a a giant overlapping system of competing subway companies essentially. Basically, and obviously they didn't work together very well. Yeah, and it was uh, the previous Usmus chief who finally pushed for an integrated system. Yes. And uh for some years, even that was barely functional. Yes, but, but that was their goal, was like... Keep just, it running. Yeah, functional. <laughs> it took uh, Terrence Kirkland coming in to finally make it start running smoothly. And that was one of his big early contributions to the city, was that he was able to start shaving minutes off of the transit time, up until the point where today it's actually working very quickly and very efficiently. Yeah, it's uh, one of his crowning achievements, I, I believe. Indeed. Now, Owen, at the start of the chapter, is still skeptical that Kirkland would hide Sarah Laurie in the transit system. But Thompson believes that Kirkland is exactly the right kind of egotistical to hide <laughs> his his prized pupil, his lover, in his greatest accomplishment. Yeah. Also, in a system in, in a system that is on the surface a complicated maze that he knows better than anyone. Yep. And it, it even takes Owen a little bit of time to suss out the irregularities in that system. And Owen is a supercomputer. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, here's what happened. So they go down into the subway system and they get a transit map. Yeah. Right? And Thompson starts, like, scoping it out. Mm -hmm. And he asks Owen, like, look, what are the changes he'd ma he's made recently? Within the last year. Yeah, within the last year. Like, since since this whole business started. And Owen starts going through all these little tweaks. Yeah, he's like, no, it's it's been hardly anything. It's been, yeah. uh, this train moved over here, and this train now runs this way, and he starts listing them off. And I like to think that Thompson would have gotten there just slower, because well, Owen's, Owen's a, super a supercomputer. Yeah, exactly. But Owen does indeed piece together the, the puzzle, because it seems like a lot of little disparate changes, but it all amounts to an entire train being hidden on the system. Yeah, he made a train disappear. Indeed. And in a figure eight loop through the system, no less. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. It also makes only two daily stops, likely so that people can get on and off and supplies can get on and off. You can't keep the train running all the time nonstop. Yeah. And they presume that Sarah Laurie is being held on that train. Yeah. Well, being held is... Maybe They're the still, wrong term for it. Before they board the train, and I mean spoiler alert for later in the chapter, before they board the train, they're still operating under the assumption that Kirkland has abducted Sarah Laurie. It's only once they get there that the uh, the situation begins to muddy itself in their eyes. <laughs> like, we believe something is up with her, certainly. And I had surmised earlier that she is, in fact, the real mastermind behind everything, but at the moment, Thompson and Owen believe that she's maybe in on it, but still maybe being held against her will. And that's kind of the playbook they're acting from for most of this chapter. Agreed. So looking at the transit schedule and the uh, presumed uh, schedule of the train that Owen has discovered, they realize that they can actually catch it if they move fast. Yes. And so with a uh, a little wink to Owen... Uh, the two of them are quickly in disguise and running aboard a train with a, a live human brain ready for oh, transplant. Once again, Owen and his 
excellent disguises and terrible stories. Yes. Thompson uh, does admit, though, that uh, Owen has terrible stories that are brazen lies, but he says them so brazenly and with such conviction that it, at the very least, tends to throw people off, he's noticed. Or throw people en- enough. Certainly. Yeah. If, if nothing else, throw them enough. Yeah. And I mean, at the very least, it's a convincing illusion either way. Oh, um, yes. I want to comment on this, actually. All right. We've come from the beginning of the book just, like, what, a week ago when Thompson didn't want anything to do with Owen and was ready to conduct his own investigation and leave Owen stuck in an underwear drawer. <laughs> yes. To him recognizing that Owen is indispensable to this investigation. And they've developed a shorthand. Owen picks up what Thompson is laying down from a wink. Yeah. Like, hey, we need a disguise to get on that train. And Owen's like, gotcha, boss. And boom, they're in disguise. Not a word was uttered. That shows the development of their partnership very well, I think. Yeah. Spending a night drunk in a museum apparently will do that to you. And, and then another night drunk at a bar. Yeah. They drink a lot. <laughs> they do. And poor Thompson hasn't had a chance to really clean up from two nights of heavy drinking. He so, he reeks like a bar. Yes. Uh, which later on he's worried might spoil an illusion. Well, also, once they get off the regular commuter train to find the Sarah Laurie train, they actually have to go like walking through tunnels. Yeah. That can't be clean work. It, if it is explicitly not, he is covered with grime and, and dust and yes. rust by yep. the time they reach the, uh, the, the ghost train. Um, and they, they do indeed do so. They hop off the, uh, the main subway train at a station where they know they can pass through the tunnel, basically, to get to where the ghost train is going to stop. And do so in between bursts of trains coming through. Yeah, they have to do that, like, stand really skinny and wait for the train to go flying past you in the tunnel thing. And they do catch the ghost train pulling up to its first scheduled stop of the day. Yep. And immediately Thompson, connoisseur of trains as he is, recognizes this is no ordinary subway train. No. It's basically a modified, like, supply freight train. Yeah, the kind of train that they would move through subway tunnels in order to move equipment or personnel to like a, an area that needs work. Yeah. That has been apparently modified. So something that doesn't have a lot of windows, for example, something that if it passed by, people might not pay it too much mind because it's not a normal commuter train. Yeah. Um, and they sneak on board through the back door. <laughs> sneak is being generous. They <laughs> they approach the train. They get on the train. It's Doors aren't locked. In they go. Well, it's a, it's a subway train. And there is immediate evidence that Sarah Laurie is there because they catch like a raincoat and and yeah rubber boots at the back they door. They basically enter like a vestibule. Indeed. And Owen gives Thompson basically the the countdown. You've got about 40 minutes till we reach the next stop. And that's how much time you have to locate Sarah and reverse kidnap her. Yes. I love that they call it a reverse kidnapping. Might be more accurate to say kidnap her considering she is where she wants to be as we will learn. Yes. But um well, as you and I suspected from a while back. Indeed. And I mean, certainly there were hints of it through the book. I don't think that, I don't think I was spoiling anything for uh, astute readers who were also <laughs> uh, picking up that something was off with that relationship. No. The train has been turned into a fairly luxurious living space. Nicer than some apartments. Yeah. Possibly so, nicer than our house. Quite possibly. <laughs> so we start with this sort of like entryway vestibule foyer sort of car. It's kind of the back door because kind it's, of, it's yeah. at the rear of the train that they sneak on. And then that leads into a kitchen. Yep. Which is 
pretty decent as kitchens go. Yeah, fairly well appointed. Right. Uh, that leads through to a little dining room, complete with chandelier. And, and magnetized table so that her place setting doesn't slide around. Uh, a magnetized table that will come in to play later on. It well, is Chekhov's magnetized table. Indeed. It kind of messes with Owen a little bit because it's clearly a strong enough magnet to do that. Indeed. Uh, and then from the dining car, we go into a bedroom slash study. Yes. Which has uh, Sarah's journal on the table. Yeah. It, and then we uh, take a little a little detour from our train visit. I'm going to detour you from your detour briefly. All right. Uh, to point at the lithograph on the wall of uh, okay. Bodicea haranguing the Britons. That is an actual painting or lithograph more yeah more appropriately. And it's it's kind of an imagined version of a historical moment. Bodicea was a, uh, a Celtic queen who led the Britons in revolt against the hated Romans. Uh, the Roman governor Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, specifically, around AD 60 or so, and was actually fairly successful in her insurrection. So, you know, it's a little on the nose. I was going to say, are you suggesting some manner of symbolism here? Indeed. Uh, the Romans, of course, would see themselves as a civilizing element to the British Isles. And Boadicea was like, uh, no, we don't want you here. Get <laughs> off our island. You are, you are invaders. You are colonists. We don't want you here. Spoiler alert. Uh, despite her early success, she loses. Well, yeah. The Romans do, in fact, remain in Britain. And... Uh, she allegedly poisoned herself rather than give herself over to Roman justice. Oh. That may be apocryphal. We don't know. Okay. But uh, That is a good thing to know, though. But, but that is an interesting, I think, point if she looks up to Boadicea to keep in mind yes. as we move forward in the book. Yes. Oh, I hope not. That's always so dark. But they also do indeed find her journal. And more than just her journal, they also find her manifesto. Well, such in as its, it is. In its early stages. Yeah. I don't even think that's a first draft. It seems very incomplete. Um, but what we do see in it is uh, writing about the need to disrupt and destroy Western culture. Yeah. So she radical. Yep. Yeah, uh, both. <laughs> Can't argue with you. Yep. <laughs> Owen and Thompson are both like, yikes. And my reply was, yikes indeed. Quite. It does include some discussion about language as a reinforcing agent and the propagation of institutional classism and racism as well, which explains the desire for her and her anarchist cell to switch to Esperanto, a conlang, because a constructed language can be built without those inlaid elements that reinforce uh, stereotypes and, and belief systems that, that are just layered into an, an extant and historical language. Yes. Well, and again, Esperanto was meant to be universal. Yeah, and right? so it's so... without a lot of those, a lot of those uh, loaded words and turns of phrase and meanings. Yes, that we, without thought, would mention in English. Yeah, <laughs> or or in our case, because English borrows from a lot from other languages, a lot appropri appropriated <laughs> words that are laden with meaning that we don't even think about. Oh yeah. So I just I also thought that was interesting. No, I agree. Knowing that they need to figure out what's going on and realizing they possibly have a few minutes, uh, Thompson decides that he should maybe look in her diary. And Owen is like, you're a creep for doing <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that's super creepy. Don't read someone's diary. Also, you should definitely do that. Yeah, you should be a creep in this case because we are trying to find this woman. And we need to know what's going on. They skim through for a while. I presume that uh, Thompson is kind of like quickly flipping through and Owen is like speed reading until they hit upon a passage that is pertinent. And in this case, the first pertinent passage 
is uh, one of the first times she mentions Kirkland in the future Civic Leaders Club. And they have actually a terrible disagreement. Oh, yeah. they Those two do not get off to a good start, Kirkland and Laurie. No, Kirkland apparently had taken umbrage with some new policy Mayor Laurie had introduced and decided to take it out on her in the middle of the club. Yeah, as though, as though it was her fault somehow. And she's super upset by it. I would be too. Uh, not just because he exoriates her in front of everyone else, but also because she doesn't necessarily agree with the policy either. And she's like, how dare he just assume yeah, that I'm like... on board with everything my father does? But then the next entry, just a few weeks later, in a much calmer hand, uh, indicates that she went and spoke to Kirkland privately about this, like went to his office and was like, listen, you, we're going to have a, a talk about this. And from that meeting, their relationship quickly began to improve because yes. it became clear that maybe they were of like mind on some issues. And he began to see her as a person. Well, uh, well, no, he doesn't just see her as people. He sees her as a peer. Because he, well, okay, fair enough. Because he has a dim view of people. <laughs> okay, that's fair. It's just that his from their first encounter, her side of it anyway, uh, he made a lot of strong assumptions. Yes. But she also kind of confesses that a part of that was because she's used to people thinking less of her because she's a woman. There's some chauvinism built into a lot of the reactions to her because she's a young, pretty celebrity. And she, I think, made an assumption as well that Kirkland was looking down on her because of that. And it became clear to her that, no, he was just looking down on her because he looks down on everyone. And when he found out that she was intelligent and was astute and was interested in some of this and passionate about some of the same things he was, that really did change his perception of her in a fundamental way. And he started to treat her as an equal. Based on that, not based on it. It really wasn't based on gender in this case. Well, not anymore. I don't think it was to begin with. And I think she was surprised by that, actually. Because in that's fact, what she's so used to. Exactly. Okay. And and it part of the reason I believe that is because she later on mentions that she's the one who kind of initiates the romantic element because she starts to fall for him and she starts to like lay in the hints. <laughs> and like, he doesn't wink, get it. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And it just like whoosh, right over his head. So... Again, I believe that he didn't treat her differently because she was a woman. He treated her differently because he thought she was an idiot. Yes, okay. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. But, but Sad as it is. But to Kirkland, a woman is not automatically an idiot. And Laurie is used to people conflating the two. Yeah. Because misogyny. Uh, yeah. I'm also a dude reading that passage. So I might have read it differently than you did. And you're strongly implying that you did take it as he was looking down on her a little bit because she was a woman. I did. I mean, I've I've stated my case, <laughs> but to bring it back around, just because I perceived it differently and I'm giving Kirkland the benefit of the doubt there doesn't mean that he necessarily deserves it. I've I've reached a point in my life and in this world where I've stopped giving the benefit of the doubt to old white men, even if they are fictional characters. That's reasonable. So, yeah, I I read it differently than you did. And that's perfectly fair. And you know what? We I know for a fact we have other read-alongers who are women. And Yay. I strongly believe that that might be the case, too, that they might have read it differently as well. Possibly. You do, you, reader. You read how you read. How you read. Again, I've stated my case. My case is obviously 
from my perspective and from my bias. And I invite other people to have different interpretations, which is part of art, which is subjective. <laughs> You're going to approach it from your own. Oh, absolutely. From your own perspective. One thing that uh, was definitely from a perspective is the diary, though. And that is because we're all hearing it from Sarah Laurie's point of view. Yes. We don't really get Kirkland's side of anything. But it does start to paint a different sort of uh, relationship between them than uh, certainly the the media within the story has been painting it. And um, perhaps a different evolution of their relationship than I had assumed. Because, again, I was under the assumption that maybe Sarah Laurie was the mastermind behind everything. But maybe... She was indeed radicalized by Kirkland, and that certainly seems to be the case. Maybe. He's the one who started suggesting more, shall we say, fringe reading to her that she definitely got into. He's the one who invited her to come to his secret cabal meetings. So he was involved in a some sort of cabal before she got involved. So maybe it was indeed Kirkland who radicalized her. I think it's possible that Kirkland was the one who radicalized her. And then she surpassed him in, quote-unquote, plans. The student became the master? Yeah. To such a point where maybe this is still her idea. It could be. Maybe he started something and she's like, you're not going far enough. And off they go. That is possible. And that is something that I had also considered. It, it certainly seems like Kirkland may have been responsible for taking her down this road. But she might very well be the one in the driver's seat now. Yeah, so you might still be right. He might have radicalized her, and then she might have further radicalized him. One thing we can say for sure is that whether or not Sarah Laurie is the mastermind behind the current anarchy that's going on, the current terrorism, mm -hmm. uh, or Kirkland is, she is she is a true believer here. She is not an innocent bystander. Oh, goodness, no. And she is definitely on this train by design and by choice. Yep, she must like it there. Armed with that knowledge, well, she has plenty of time to do her reading and her and write her manifesto. Yeah, and it does seem like it was custom made for her. Oh, it was definitely custom made for her. It's nice. It's even got a nice little garden that they pass through. Yeah. Okay. So yes, after they're done reading her journal, well, uh, the English part of her journal, because after that it switches to Esperanto. Yes. And I can't help but feel like we're gonna miss something without having those translated pages. Maybe I don't know. Anyway, they continue on down the train. To look for Sarah herself. Yep. And they come across, like, a, a garden car. Yeah. Kind of funny. I kind of pictured it like like a hydroponic garden. It might be a little bit of that, but it's also got, like, high-definition screens set up to give it the illusion of more space. Mm -hmm. Like, it's an actual so there's park. There's, like, birdsong and... Yeah, my guess is that it's... Fake sunlight. It's to give her a little bit of, like outside time despite the fact she's mostly cooped up some, on a train some nature because she's trapped underground so that she doesn't get cabin fever necessarily yeah because it's not like she can just get off the train and go wandering around town people will instantly recognize her she's the most celebrated celebrity in metropolis yeah yeah and she's missing and people care about that also i'm pretty sure people are trying to find her yes no explicitly so yeah and not in the like happy fan way no as they make their way through the garden, they move into another room where they are basically walked in on. Oh, kind of. They have enough warning that there's uh, like a glass of pink lemonade on the table with some still icy ice in it. Yes. Meaning that it's fresh. Yep. 
And Thompson has enough time to try to hide before she comes into the room and sits down with a book. I, I sort of imagine it as like a little patio space in her garden. Despite uh, his effort to hide, Thompson has been spotted. Yes. And she immediately begins talking to him in Esperanto. Yes. Uh, and then Owen gives him some things to say. Yeah. Owen had previously had the foresight to disguise Thompson because Thompson had said, hey, like, I look like crap. Yeah. When they got on the train, we could, should you, fix this. could you fix it up so that I look a little more presentable? And Owen was like, no problem. And then reveals at this point, by the way, you're wearing a black suit right now. You look like one of the rogue agents. Yeah. So Thompson starts getting fed lines in Esperanto that he's poorly, poorly uh, trying to His accent is pronounce. terrible. Yeah. Yes. Um, but Owen has a built-in excuse and has Thompson essentially say, I'm new. I'm, this is my first day <laughs> and I've been sent by Kirkland. And Sarah is much more forgiving of his really crappy Esperanto and switches to English for his convenience at that juncture. Very kind of her. Indeed. Um, and Thompson kind of makes a gamble. Uh, he decides that he's going to try to bluff his way into her confidence here. <laughs> and so he opens with a gambit of apologizing on behalf of Kirkland for not having the chance to come visit. And he's betting that it's because Kirkland has it. And he realizes that if he has certainly recently come to visit, like, it's over right there. Yeah. She will have figured him out. But it turns out to be a good gamble. Well, based on everything else in the train basically being built for one, yeah, it's a slightly more educated gamble, I think. Yeah, and he, Thompson also earlier noted there were no signs that Kirkland had been there. Not only would it be uncomfortable for more than one person to be moving around in the train for lengthy periods, yeah, but, like, there's not an errant sock, there's not... Like a little bit of stubble in a sink or something. Like yeah. there's no sign that anybody else has been. The there. garden has been built specifically for Sarah Laurie. Like it is built for a slender woman to walk through. Yeah. Comfortably. Like he has trouble brushing against plants. Yeah. So like it's it's a fairly educated gamble, but it is a gamble nonetheless. Um, yeah. Sarah buys that and immediately lets down her guard a little bit. Just a little. Just, just a little. A, just enough. And so Thompson pushes with their plan to essentially get her off the train. I don't know what exactly their plan was for after that, especially because she clearly wanted to be on the train and yep. she's clearly in on it. Yeah. But uh, at the very least, step one, get her off the train. Step two, question mark. Step three, stop terror. I guess. Um, step four, profit. So he basically lays out, I've been sent by Kirkland because you need to be moved. Because those darn pencil pushers over to us, miss, we think have figured out about the train. Those and so jerks. Kirkland wants to move you to a safer location. And she buys it. Yeah. She's like, oh, all right. Well, let me grab a bag and then off we'll go. But then all cover is blown by a magnet. Uh, because Thompson forgot about the magnet. Yeah. Chekhov's magnet goes off and that causes enough interference that the illusion is broken. Yeah. Because her side table, which had her lemonade on it. Was also a magnet. Was also a magnet to keep the lemonade there. And he got too close, and then Owen got disrupted, which means his disguise went all wonky. And... And you can't really hide that. No. Um, Thompson, his first instinct is to try to fast talk this, but he does not have time to fast talk this. No, because she punches him in the face with her lemonade. Yes. Uh, that causes Owen to <laughs> once again pass out at the sight of blood, because she breaks his nose. <laughs> I love, I love what happens here. Not that I appreciate that Owen's passed out again, but just that he 
constantly turns into a French bulldog that passes out. As like, he... there's something wrong with my patch, and then there's an unconscious bulldog there. And to be fair, him crashing to blue screen uh, does distract Sarah long enough that Thompson feebly tries to get away. Yeah, but that then, doesn't work. But then she just clubs him unconscious with her empty lemonade glass. Yep. And that is where the chapter comes to an end. Yep, we stop with the two of them being unconscious on a train with Sarah Laurie. Who I... is who is their enemy. Yes. Make no mistake. I can only assume that they wake up like tied to a chair or something. Uh, well, obviously, we haven't read ahead, as we never do. No, but that's my guess. Is normally when someone, normally when you have a cliffhanger and someone has been uh, waylaid unconscious, normally they wake up tied to a bed or tied to a chair or tied up on the floor. Well, if we're going to go under the assumption that this is a noir-esque detective story, and certainly there are a lot of noir-esque tropes at play. Yeah. Sarah Laurie is our femme fatale, True. for example. Uh, Thompson is a barely functional detective who keeps getting beaten up. <laughs> and uh, it follows then that uh, a trope that we should be hitting at roughly this point in the story is being captured by the bad guys. Yep. And maybe having a face-to-face with Terrence Kirkland finally. And Ooh. so my assumption is not only does he wake up tied to a chair, he wakes up tied to a chair being given over to the rogue agents. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. Because Lori might try to interrogate him herself, but my suspicion is that she might contact Kirkland and hand over Thompson. Probably. Our, I think our only hope, if that is the scenario, uh, is that they don't figure out Owen yet. They don't appear to have been prepared for Owen at all. Uh, at the very least, the agent that they left back at the uh, slum yeah. and the uh, group of agents who they uh, tangled with at Metmo. At the, at the museum, yeah. Uh, are aware that Thompson has illusions at his disposal and that there might be some sort of sophisticated holography at work. They don't necessarily know it is Owen. And they don't necessarily know that it's the tie clip. And they don't necessarily know that it's the tie clip. But uh, they definitely, at this juncture, there's no way that Kirkland doesn't know that there's something up. He just probably doesn't know that it's Owen. Yeah. But we also don't know how much uh, information he had about Usmus before he enacted his plan. He was very much running his own fiefdom over in Metropolis, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he was completely isolated from what was going on back at headquarters. No, he couldn't have been. So it's possible he knew about the Owen research. Maybe. He was high ranking. Well, we'll find out, won't we? I guess we will. Mm. Mm. Speculation. Indeed. We're good at that. Yeah. That's what we do really well around here. Now, uh, in this book, one thing that Owen has done uh, is transition from being just a stationary supercomputer who is acting as everyone's personal assistant to actually becoming uh, an agent in the field. And that is quite a, a career change and the kind of career change that a lot of people could make in their life with the proper education like this. Your next career move is right around the corner, and NorQuest College is here to help. Our new Career Moves Professional Development Program will help you transition to new job opportunities. Funded by the Future Skills Center, we will provide one-on-one -on -one coaching, self-assessments, skill development and training, and up to $2,000 in available tuition credit. Our focus is your success. Make your next move. Apply today at norquest.ca slash career moves. So yeah, NorQuest and their Career Moves program. Uh, something worth checking out if you're looking at transitioning into a new career or you want to pursue new opportunities, uh, there's a program for you. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Cool.
Yeah. Uh, while you're checking out that, you can also, of course, uh, check out many of the other supporters of the Alberta Podcast Network. You can find a, a listing of those over at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Yep. And while you're there, you should definitely check out our other fellow podcasts, many of which are up for Canadian Podcast Awards. Which is exciting. Uh, those awards have not been given out yet, so at least as of the point of this recording. Yes. So we don't know if uh, we have won or lost. We don't. Uh, but uh, it's very possible that several of our other fellow podcasts might also win such an award. and Which would be really nice. And are definitely worth checking out anyway. Absolutely. Indeed. Um, you can also check us out elsewhere on the CKUA app. Yep. And on social media. The usual collection that I say every time. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Goodreads. Yeah, we're at the read-along at virtually all of the above. Yeah, you can send us an email if you like, if you want more characters. We're the read-along, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, see? Super easy. Yeah, and uh, with that said, as usual, we'll see you next time. For more noir buddy, buddy copiness things. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com. Goodreads.com.